Well, welcome back to our study through the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. Um, so good, again, to be in a room full of, of saints, uh, worshiping and singing to the Lord, praying together. Um, it just it fills me up each and every week, so it's good to be back together with you guys again. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Have you ever learned about something in history and thought, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation? Uh, I think of many of the meetings of Winston Churchill during World War II, uh, or the famous Here I Stand moment of Martin Luther, uh, or the discussion amongst the astronauts about who would be the first one to step out on the moon. I uh, would have loved to have, have heard that. Uh, I'm sure there was a, an argument there. Uh, in the realm of church history, there are so many scenes that I would love to observe. Uh, and one of these is the life of a man named George Mueller. Uh, if you don't know anything about George Mueller, he's known for his prayer life. Uh, he prayed fervently and in faith, and God answered his prayers uh, repetitively in seemingly miraculous ways sometimes. Uh, I would have loved to have watched and most importantly heard how and what that guy prayed. But here in Colossians, we have something even better than that. We get to be a fly on the wall to see what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church. As with Jesus, Paul is certainly giving us content in these letters, but we're also meant to see what it is that he's modeling for us and to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So let's dive into the text. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Our three main points this morning for framing this text are these. Number one, belief. Number two, behavior. And number three, core truths. So point number one, belief. Uh, thinking back to uh, the introduction that I just gave this morning. If you were going to pray for the church, either the, the capital C universal church of all Christians of all time, or to pray for a specific local church, what would you pray? Last week, I asked you what you'd write to another church from prison. But this week, what would you pray? Think about that for a moment. What would you pray for the church? While this section seems like Paul's praying for a ton of things, 
In the end, he's really only praying for one thing, with a lot of implications that then follow. So what's Paul praying for the church? Look again at verse 9. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Before we jump into the content of Paul's prayer, I just want to point out something that might seem strange to us again. Uh, The first two words here, and so, uh, they actually point back to what Paul just said. He's thanked God that the word of truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, the gospel is succeeding, like we said last week. Now, why do you pray? More specifically, when do you pray? If you're anything like me, I tend to pray more, more often, when things aren't succeeding, when life's difficult, or things aren't going well, when there's sickness, or suffering, or loss. That's how most prayer requests go, right? What can we pray for? And then a list of things that aren't going well. Uncle John's got cancer. My friend is experiencing financial stress. And on down the list. But Paul is saying the gospel is succeeding. Fruit is increasing. Therefore, I'm not going to stop praying for you. Don't get me wrong. When times are tough, there's absolutely no better place to go than to God in prayer. We should call on the people of God to pray in times of trouble. That's a no-brainer. But do you pray when things are going well? Paul does. He notices that God is at work. and His reflex here is to pray, to ask God to continue that work and to do even more. What are some gospel successes happening in our church, in our county, in our country, and in our world that you can celebrate and pray about today. Now, look at what it is that he prays. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Remember that the Gnostics have been telling the Colossian church that they need this knowledge, this gnosis, a secret knowledge, if you will. Paul uses a different word here, epignosis. Several commentators point out that this word epignosis is almost a technical term for the decisive knowledge of God, which is involved in conversion to the Christian faith. So instead of the the so-called knowledge that the Gnostics want them to have, Paul's praying for a converting knowledge, knowledge of God's will. And he's praying not just that they'd have some knowledge of God's will, but that they'd be filled with God's will, saturated. The the word here means filled to the brim, completely full. Think about that. There are a lot of people who know facts here and there about God's word. You can 
know facts about God's word and not be filled by the knowledge of it. Paul's praying that they'd be completely controlled by the knowledge of God's will. So, what's God's will? This is typically a question we ask when we're trying to figure out who to date, or who to marry, or what job to take, or what school to go to. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the knowledge of what God delights in, or what God takes pleasure in. It's less about knowing our future, and more about knowing what will be pleasing to God. How do we know that? Through his word, right? Again, I can't recommend this book enough to you guys. I've mentioned it several times. Just do something. A liberating approach to finding God's will. Or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. By Kevin DeYoung. Um, really, really helpful on how the scriptures use this term, will of God. Uh, in this book, uh, DeYoung shows that scripture, in scripture, this word, God's will, is both more comprehensive and less specific than we often make it. And what, what I mean by this is God's will isn't just you answering what college to go to or who to marry. It's way, way more than that. It's more about your holiness and sanctification. So check this out. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. This is just one example. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Then verse 3. For this is the will of God. You ready for it? Your sanctification. So God's will is both more comprehensive and less specific than how we often use it. Now we know that, that we know God's will through reading and meditating on, memorizing, and even praying through God's word. Paul is praying that they'd be full of that kind of knowledge. Now, just briefly, a lot of people have problems or trouble with the idea of knowledge today. Now, I've known Christians who don't want any knowledge at all. They either want to remain willfully ignorant of doctrine in the scriptures, or they're more into experiences. The, the first group just wants to kind of go through the motions of Christianity without doing the hard work of studying the Bible. They may say things like, I'm not really interested in that head knowledge stuff. I just love Jesus. Fair enough. But let me ask you this. If you came to me and you asked me, Drew, when's Shannon your wife's birthday? And I responded, nope, nope, nope. Don't want any head knowledge of Shannon. I just love her. Okay. Well, What's her favorite restaurant in town? Nope, nope, no head knowledge. I, I don't need to know what pleases her. I just love her, didn't you hear? Eventually, you question what it meant for me truly to love her. Ignorance is not bliss. If willful, it's actually unloving. 
knowledge of the will of God is vital to loving him. You might be thinking, Drew, why in the world are you picking on this? Are there really people out there who say things like this? Yes, many actually. Every single person I've known who's gone to seminary has been warned by well-meaning people to not let that head knowledge stuff ruin your faith. I've heard that many times. Here's a quote from one of the most popular evangelical pastors today. He says, I want our church to be a church for the overlooked and unloved. So good so far. Then he says, not to have as many Bible studies as we can have. No, we've got Jesus. We preach him. If you know Jesus, I'm sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. Yeah, but I just gave my life to Christ last week. And then he says, last week was the last week that this church existed for you. We do one thing. We preach Jesus. You see that? For him, there's a disconnect and a contrast between preaching Jesus and Bible study. The scriptures teach that these two things are intimately tied together. Knowledge of the will of God is vital to loving him. Then there's the, I don't want knowledge, just experience people. Now, there's nothing wrong with experiencing God. That's a good thing. But how do you know that it's God that you're experiencing? Guess what? Through knowledge of him. He's revealed himself through his word. So is your experience of God shaped by God's will in his word? And to be clear, this is much, much more than just head knowledge. Look at what Paul adds at the end. He says, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. I can spout Bible trivia at you all day long and have no wisdom or understanding. Wisdom is applied knowledge, and understanding is comprehension of God's purposes. That's what Paul's praying for them. Unceasingly, he says. Side note, that doesn't mean all the time, 24-7, he's always and only praying for the Colossians. What he's saying is this. Every time I think about you guys, I'm praying this for you. It's as natural as breathing. So I'll ask us this morning, is this how you pray for the church? Both the people of our church and other churches? Paul's model here is instructive. He's praying for their belief. But There's absolutely implications to that prayer. Point two, behavior. Look with me again at verses 10 through 12. So Paul's already prayed and asked that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
So why does Paul pray for them to have knowledge of God's will? So that they'll walk worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, the word walk refers to one's conduct or way of life. We use this kind of language all the time, right? We say things like, you can talk the talk, but you've got to walk the walk. Walk refers to one's way of life or how you actually live. Paul prayed for them to have right belief so that they would have right behavior. You see that. In Hebrew thought and in the thought of the whole New Testament, knowledge and conduct are bound together. Go read James chapter 2. That's his whole point, that real faith expresses itself through works. J.I. Packer, he once wrote this. He said, God will only prosper our study if we continually exercise ourselves to live by what we learn. Then our knowledge will deepen and expand, but otherwise it will run out into sterile verbiage and mental error. Similarly, R. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, a profound knowledge should profoundly affect one's walk. It must be understood that any doctrine which isolates the believer from the needs of the world is not a spiritual doctrine. Or put another way, if our doctrine lifts us up so high that our feet cannot reach the ground, it is false. I think that's right. That's the implication that's being spelled out here in Paul's prayer. He's prayed for the fullness of the knowledge of God's will. Now he's praying that that knowledge will work its way from the head to the hands and feet. Now, walking the walk has four implications in this prayer. Look again at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So, number one, walking the walk looks like bearing fruit in every good work. Good works are not the root of Christianity, but they are the fruit. Self-denial, love of neighbor, sacrificial love. Good works can never save us. They don't earn God's favor in a saving sense. The only way to be made right with God is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, one who genuinely has given their life to Christ will produce fruit in every good work. Think Gnostic heresy again. Paul's saying real Christianity isn't secret spirituality. It's gospel fruit-bearing good works. If you're a Christian, if you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ as the only hope of your salvation, do you see fruit in how you live? Do you do good works as a response to the good news of Jesus? The first implication of walking the walk is bearing good fruit. Then there's a second implication. It says bearing, good fruit, uh, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. For good measure, Paul throws that word in again, knowledge. But he's praying this time, not only that they'll have it, but that it'll increase. So understand this. When it comes to 
being justified or made right with God, we're never more or less justified than the day that we were born again. The moment that you repented and believed, you were fully made right with God. That doesn't increase or decrease, ever. But when it comes to our growth in sanctification, when it comes to our knowledge of God, Christians never arrive this side of heaven anyway. After the Protestant Reformation, there was this Dutch Reformed pastor by the name of Jadokus van Lodenstein. Amazing name, right? Jadokus van Lodenstein. And he wrote this devotional, and in it he said this. He said, The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed, according to the word of God. You, you may have heard the Latin phrase, semper reformanda, always reforming. That's where this phrase came from. Uh, while many have hijacked this phrase to say the church should always be changing or becoming more and more progressive, that's not what Lodenstein or the reformers were saying. Notice that the church in this phrase is passive. She's being reformed according to the word of God. That's what Paul is praying would happen increasingly in the Colossian church. This side of heaven, we never come to a place where we've arrived in the knowledge of God. We should always be growing and being reformed by God's word and the knowledge of God. Third, look at verse 11. Third implication of walking the walk. It says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Part of walking the walk is being strengthened with all power. Two truths for us to consider here. Look at the next phrase. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The strengthening that Paul's praying for is on God's scale, not on a human scale. That's important. It's a power that, that comes from outside of us, not from within us. It's the power of God himself. Human resources are not enough to bring about real change in this world. So Paul prays for power according to his glorious might. Now, the second truth to consider here is this, and I want to start with a question. If you could have this kind of power that Paul's praying for, what would you use it for? What would its purpose be? What would the focus of the power be? Look at what Paul says. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance, patience, joy. First, the word endurance. What's he talking about there? The, the prayer is for a kind of steadfastness to hold one's, one's position in battle. Uh, after uh, reflecting on his victory at Waterloo in 1815, the Duke of Wellington said this, he said, our men were not braver than the enemy. They were merely braver five minutes longer. Evil forces, Gnostic heresy, 
And other elements are threatening to destroy the Colossian church in the Lycus Valley. They needed endurance. So are you praying for endurance for each other as we live as Christians in Santa Cruz County? We need it. Second, patience. He prays for endurance. Second, he prays for patience. Paul knew that spiritual growth often takes time. He knew that the Colossian church probably experienced setbacks, frustrations, discouragement. They needed patience, part of the fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs 16.32 says, Patience is better than power, and controlling one's temper than capturing a city. They needed endurance, and they definitely needed patience. Third, with joy. Another part of the fruit of the Spirit. Think about this. When you're enduring hardship, fighting for patience, think about that. Is your natural reaction joy? It's not mine. (laughs) This is the kind of thing that displays Christ. It makes us as Christians different from the world around us kind of thing that makes someone take notice and ask the question, why are you like that? You're experiencing hardship with endurance and patience and joy? What in the world? Why are you like that? To which we get to respond with the reason for the hope that's within us. And again, because these things aren't natural for us, Paul's praying for them, and he's praying for a supernatural amount of power behind it. So, Part of walking the walk is bearing fruit in good works. It's increasing in the knowledge of God. It's being strengthened with all power. And fourth, look at the front of verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Part of walking worthy of the Lord is giving thanks to God. In just a moment, we'll see exactly what it is that Paul and the Colossians are thankful for. But from a higher level... Are we thankful people? Do we regularly take time to thank thank God, even in the midst of trial? This is part of walking the walk of Christianity. We're not entitled, but thankful. We realize that we've been given a gift in the gospel, and we respond in gratitude. So Paul prays for their belief and for their Christian behavior. But he roots all of it in point three, core truths. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. He says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Why do Christians give thanks to the Father? Paul lists these core truths. First, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice the verb tenses here. For you grammar nerds out there, it's an aorist. I won't fully explain that right now, but here's what I want you to see. It's speaking of something that happened and has a present reality. 
Think about observing a parade from a helicopter. What this means is that we are now in the realm of light. In other words, all the conditions have been met for your inheritance and full standing as children of God. If you're a Christian, this is a present reality. Yes, it's a future reality as well. So something that happened in the past has a present reality and has a future reality as well. One day, we'll experience light in its fullest extent. And here's the kicker. Look at the subject of the sentence there. Who is it? The Father. It's him who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's not us who qualified ourselves. It's not our good works. It's not our intelligence. It's not our persistence. It's God's. Do you understand why this truth leads to giving thanks? Second, look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Again, these verbs here are fascinating. The first word translated deliver means to rescue, deliver, pull out, remove. Then the second word, transferred, kind of as its counterpart. One commentator notes that the word for brought or transferred is used in other places to describe a mighty king picking up a whole population and deporting it to another realm. So God has pulled us out and deported us out of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and placed us in another kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. Again, this is a past action with present and future realities. But realize this, when God forgave you through Christ, it didn't just cancel sin. It did do that, but what Paul's saying is that sin wasn't just canceled, you were removed from its dominion. Yes, your sin was pardoned on the cross, but God deported you out of the domain of darkness. He placed you in the kingdom of his beloved Son. What a gracious and loving God. Third and finally, Paul says in verse 14, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we've been redeemed, purchased from the slave market, and our sins forgiven. You know what this means? It means that you're no longer a slave to your past. Your sins committed yesterday, last year, last decade, they're forgiven, and you're free to move forward. Not as a slave, but as a redeemed and free person. These are core truths that lead Christians to thanksgiving. Could anything else be more appealing than that? Paul wants the Colossians and us to know these truths and to live by them. So, in closing, how and what do you pray for other Christians? What do you pray for the people of this church? What do you pray for members of other churches? Now, I want to encourage you to consider using this exact text as a grid for your prayers. 
In our series on prayer, we talked about a book by Don Whitney called Praying the Bible. A fantastic book. This is one of those texts that makes it easy to do that. To just open up to Colossians 1, 9-14, and to pray these exact things for your, your neighbors who are in Christ. To pray the, these exact same things for the people in this room. So open up your Bible, read these verses, pray their content for specific people you know. That's part of discipleship. Remember our definitions we gave a couple weeks ago. A disciple is anyone walking in the way of Jesus Christ, intending to integrate their relationship with Jesus into every area of life. Discipling is the activity of believers to deliberately help another believer grow to be more like Jesus. If you're praying this text for each other, you're praying for growth to be more like Jesus. This is basic Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is what it looks like to be a member of a church, to put on the team jersey and commit to link arms in prayer and discipleship, to put feet to your faith, to walk worthy of the Lord, and to not walk alone. Let's pray.